Few things in our culture are more terrifying than hijackers. Whether it's a bus, a car, a plane, there is not many things in our culture that promote more fear than turning on the news and seeing, scrolling through the bottom, hijacking in progress. In our text this morning, in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28, which if you haven't already, I want you to turn there in your Bible, Matthew 8, starting in verse 28, we see hijackers of a different sort, much more evil, much more malevolent, and we see these two hijackers have taken control of two men who the Scripture tells us are demonically possessed. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about this preaching point from the text because this text is here because what Matthew is getting us to understand is Christ's power over even the demonic forces. The last couple of weeks, we've talked about Christ's authority over disease. We've talked about Christ's authority over nature itself. Uh, And here in the third teaching of this set, Matthew makes it clear unequivocally that Jesus has supernatural authority over even the demonic forces, which gives us confidence in this, that Jesus' dominion over demonic forces ought to give us extreme confidence in his identity and in his mission to save you from sin. And that's our preaching point as we begin looking to the Word of God and studying it. So what I'd love for us to do now is look at verses 28 through 34, and let's ground ourselves in some context. We need to understand some context here if we're going to take away what God wants us to take away from this text. And so, with that being said, follow along with me, starting there in verse 28. And when Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, we're going to pause because I'm going to take you to a a parallel passage. Uh, Often when we have uh, accounts, and there are a few accounts in the Gospels where both Matthew, Mark, and Luke share certain accounts, and often when they do, Uh, Matthew gives the most truncated or summarized version of them. And so often, if you want more details about certain stories and accounts in the Gospels, you'll want to go to Mark and Luke. They don't share all of the accounts in common, but some they do, like this one with the demon-possessed men. And Mark gives us a little more detail of the kind of personality and the kind of powers Uh, that these demonic men had. Matthew tells us they were just so fierce that no one could pass that way. But in Mark 5, verses 3 through 5, it continues, and it says this, that no one can bind him, particularly talking about one, and and we assume that this is the worst of the two, right? No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in place. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Really what you need to think about here is picture in your mind the state of the individuals here that Matthew and Mark and Luke are wanting you to picture. I mean, these are very demonically possessed men, very powerful. They had a lot of authority in the area that they were in, and no one dared pass by the places that they were. But then look at verse 29. And behold, when Jesus comes up, they cried out. And Luke adds, they fell down before him. So these very authoritative beings, these entities that have usurped the power and authority over these two men, when no one could pass by because of how fierce they were, the minute that Jesus gets out of the boat, walks up the hill a little ways, they see him, and the first thing they do is they cry out and they fall down before him. And they ask, What have you to do with us? Now, the translators have done a good job here because really this is an idiomatic phrase in the original Hebrew, which which simply means this, what do we have in common? Like, 
the demons recognize when they look at Jesus, uh, one thing comes to their mind, which you're going to get to it in just the next phrase, and that is the coming judgment. And so for these demons, when, when they see Jesus, they have to ask the question, what do we have in common? Or what in the world are you doing here right now? Because I know the date that we have set our next encounter in the future is going to be our ultimate demise. And so really the question is begged, what are we doing here right now? You're here a little bit early for this date that we have on the calendar for some day in the future. So what in the world are you doing here, O oh, son of God? Now, I want us to pay attention there, and perhaps if you would underline or highlight the term, O oh, son of God. It'd be important for you to do that because so far in the Gospel of Matthew, up until chapter 8 in the Gospel of Matthew, there are only two instances where Jesus is identified as the Son of God. It's here by the demons, and again in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5, by Satan. It's important, isn't it? To recognize the only two places so far in the Gospel of Matthew where anyone recognizes the identity of Jesus, it is demons and it is Satan. It's important, particularly in a culture where everyone believes that they're okay because they know that Jesus is the Son of God. And we have demons and we have Satan who both have a date on the eschatological calendar where they're going to meet face-to-face with God and Christ, and they are going to be taken to a place of eternal judgment and torment, even though they know the identity of the Son of God. It may be an aside to this text, but just to recognize here on the onset that belief in Jesus' identity is not the hallmark of salvation. The demons do it. Even James says, right? You believe the Lord God is one, but even the demons believe this and they shudder. Here we recognize that identifying that Jesus is the Son of God is not what is salvation As Scripture marks out clearly, it's repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins that is the hallmark of salvation. I mean, it's the very things that Satan and the demons will not do. You recognize Satan and the demons, they recognize, well, yes, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who's going to have authority over all things. I mean, Satan, you remember when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, Satan was trying to get him to do everything he could to not obey the commands of his Father, ultimately be crucified, and ultimately being handed over the kingdom. That's why Satan says, hey, here's the deal. Look at all these kingdoms. He takes him up on, on, over there on, on the corner of the temple mountain. He says, look out, all these things. He took him on a high mountain and said, all these things I will give you if you will obey me. What is he really saying? You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. You don't have to take the wrath of God, the Father. If you will just bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdom. I'll give you this kingdom that I have. Why did, what did he recognize? The identity of Christ, the mission of Christ, the authority of Christ. And guess what that didn't cause him to do? He didn't repent one time. He didn't trust in Christ an iota. And just like many people in our world today, you can believe in the Father, you can believe in the Son, you can believe in in the triune nature of God with the Holy Spirit, you can believe and have all the right doctrine in the world and not be saved. Because what leads to salvation is placing your trust in the person and work of Christ, that he took your sins on the cross, and that you would stand before a holy God justified, not because of your work, but because of his And here's just a clear reminder of great doctrine of the demons not leading to salvation. It's good to have good doctrine. You ought to have good doctrine. But you better understand that good doctrine ought to lead to right living. And part of right living is responding appropriately to the gospel. Amen? All right. These very things that Satan and demons won't do, that is repent and trust, is the very thing that anyone must do if they want to be saved. And here's what the demons have to say. More good theology from the demons. Have you come here to torment us before the time? See, the demons know exactly what's to come, which I think is very important for the church to understand that eschatological truths and realities aren't just a side dish on the platter of Christianity. Because when you see the demons, they look at Jesus, they understand who he is, they understand his authority, they understand his mission, and you know the first thing they bring up? Eschatological truth. Why? 
Because the end really, really matters. What is going to happen to you and to me and to Satan and all the demonic forces of the world is of utmost importance to the biblical narrative. And they were on the front of the minds of the demons. What have you come to do to torment us before the time? They're concerned about what the state of their situation is going to be after Jesus is done with them. And then verse 30, now there was a herd of many pigs, Mark numbers them to be about 2,000, and they were feeding at some distance for them. Now it would at least take a moment to recognize why there were pigs in this region and not sheep, which you often hear when you think about the Gospels. Jesus and the disciples have got to the other side here of the Sea of Galilee, and they entered a region, it is the Gadarenes, but even the larger region there is called the Decapolis, right? Decapolis, two Greek words, deca, which means ten, and polis, which means city. So the Decapolis is is a region of ten cities that were Greek-speaking cities. These were Gentile cities, and so that's why we have pigs and not sheep, because if you, you went to uh, Sunday school growing up, you would know that it isn't kosher for the Jews to have pigs. And so again, it's just a reminder that Jesus and the disciples are at a place far from Jewish culture and Jewish background. They're at a very Gentile place, which ought to then remind us of the motif that Matthew has here in the text of often reminding us of the fact that there's coming a time where the Gentiles will be included in the promises of God. Everyone in a while when we read the gospel of Matthew, like I bring up every time it comes up in the text, remember that Jesus is going to make disciples of all nations. And here, just a small example of him being there on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in a Gentile region, and he's there showing people who he is and his mission. And it was there with these 2,000 pigs that the demons begged Jesus and saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And Jesus, with one commanding word, said, Go. So they came out and they went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the waters. Some commentators point out here in this point in the text that this may be the temporal judgment that prefigures the ultimate judgment to come, right? And we love it, don't we? Don't we love when evil, we trust that evil is going to be dealt with for good when it comes to the eschatological time of the judgment of God, the the casting uh, to uh, the lake of fire of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and, and all those who follow him, and then the great white throne judgment there at the end of Revelation where you'll see the separating of the sheep and the goats, and you'll see there that, that God casts all those who are unrighteous, who will not trust in the gospel, that he casts them away into eternal punishment. Right? We all look forward to that. But isn't it nice, it doesn't always happen, but isn't it nice when we also, on this side of that date, recognize a little bit of temporal judgment? We see here, here in time and space, as we recognize there's coming a time of judgment, that here we see just an example of what is to come. We see the God's sovereignty over evil. We see justice being served And here we see it once more that Jesus showing his authority over these demons, cast them into the pigs, the pigs go off running, and they drown in the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Now verse 33, this is where things start getting good. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Now just think for a minute how this interaction happened. Gentiles in the region of the Decapolis, they did not grow up with a Judeo-Christian worldview. They didn't grow up quoting the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. All they know is this man got off the boat and they said this, those crazy men that we can't go over there anymore, we can't visit aunt and uncle because we can't go that way anymore, he got over there, he looked at those guys, he cast those demons out of those men cured them, those men dressed in their right mind, hanging out with Jesus and these 12 other dudes, and uh, by the way, all your food is dead, and it's not our fault. (laughs) Emphasis on not our fault. 
I want you to imagine that for a minute. These were herdsmen. Their responsibility was to take care of the food for the region. And they're going back and they're saying, you're not going to believe what happened to all of your bacon. It's gone. But believe me, it wasn't us. It was him. And behold, I mean, with this great excitement and honestly bad news in the minds of many of the people who lived in that region, the whole city came out to meet Jesus And when they saw him, and Luke adds, they were seized with great fear. And because of that, they begged him to leave their region. What I want us to do with the rest of our time is I want us to take a thematic look at the purposes of Jesus' encounter with these demons. And the first thing that I want you to think about as we look at this text is the authority That we see in the text. And I'm not just talking about Jesus' authority, I'm talking about all the authority. This text reeks of authority and it is everywhere. It's important for us to note that because at the end of this, what we're gonna recognize as supreme authority lands with Jesus. But it doesn't mean there aren't other authorities. Scripture talks about Satan and the demonic forces as authorities and principalities. And so it is important for us to recognize that demonic forces at work, even in today's world is very much an authority. But we got to recognize, as we even have titled this entire sermon series, Jesus is greater, we have to see in this text where the ultimate authority lies. And so as we do that, I want you to look at least at verse 28 and 29. I want you to notice the amount of authority that the demons held, both over the men that they have taken over and the villagers. You have these two Demon-possessed men, and they, their whole lives, their minds, their bodies, were possessed and taken over by these demons. And you read uh, in the parallel accounts, and Jesus asked them their names, and their name is Legion, which a legion is, uh, at least in the Roman military, 6,000 foot soldiers. And so we at least can represent and understand that these two men had not just one or two demons in them. He had many. They had many demons. And they usurped authority over these two men and over the entire region. So fierce that no one could pass that way. I want you to just catch that. Don't lose that because that's exactly what Matthew wants you to see in this text is, do you see how authoritative these demons were? Did you see just how much control that they had over these people in this village? Keep that in mind. Because the next picture is just how quickly the demons realize how little authority they really had. And you see that the minute that Jesus walks up, they cried out and they fell before him. And they start asking him the questions because they recognize that their time is short. And what in the world is the one who is all authoritative? What is he doing here with us, O Son of God? And you see this authority applied when you see now the demons start negotiating with Jesus, you know you've lost the authoritative position when you start negotiating. Isn't that right? You know that when you go buy a car, don't you, unfortunately? Well, will you take this? Okay, well, okay, I'll give you this. Okay, well, I'll give you my house and my first child. Can I just have the keys to that car? And you see that here when the demons have just wreaked havoc, put their flag there in that region, and here they said, Okay, if you cast us out, in short, because we know you're about to cast us out, can you at least send us to the pigs? And Jesus, with with one simple word, and again, Matthew loves to help us see that it wasn't the magical words of Jesus or the magical words of anyone that made this happen, and that's why he truncates this phrase to one word. Go. I mean, how authoritative is that? I mean, we remember that just a couple of weeks ago with the Roman centurion when he recognized the authority of Jesus because he says, I recognize authority because I'm a man under authority and I have men under authority among me. And what do I tell them to do? Go. And when I say go, what do they do? They go. And here Jesus, again, with that same authority says, go. And they go. And then I want you to Think about the testimony of the herdsmen here in this text. The herdsmen fled. Why did they flee? 
I can imagine, in part, it's because their entire livelihood drowned in the Sea of Galilee. But I think the main reason they fled was because they saw the authority of Jesus. They saw the authority of Jesus. And you don't think for one moment that those herdsmen weren't negotiating with the space between them and those bands with the demon? That's the first thing you're going to do, isn't it? You got a job site. You recognize there's two crazy demon-possessed people just a little ways away. You make sure that you move that herd just a little bit away from them people. Okay, you recognize those herdsmen knew exactly where those demon-possessed men were. And they kept a close eye over there. So you imagine with this interchange of Jesus and the demonic forces over there that they weren't one eye on the pigs and one eye over there on what was going on with Jesus and the demons. And they watched this thing unfold and they watched these demon-possessed men in their right minds talking to Jesus and the disciples and they watched their pigs scurry off and drown in the sea and you don't think they connected the dots. And so they, recognizing the authority of Christ, run into the town and said, you're not going to believe what just happened. And then I want you to notice, lastly, the authority of the villagers. The city came out to meet Jesus, and they saw him. And wouldn't you believe they threw a big old party for all those people who were healed? Can you imagine that they invited them in to the community, and they said, Jesus, if you can do that to those two men, imagine how you can transform our community to follow God, to follow Yahweh. Is that what they did? is isn't what they did, is it? They saw the authority of Jesus, and they said, I don't want that here. They said, whatever you did to him and him, I don't want that. As a matter of fact, you've made enough of a mess here can you please leave? Nevertheless, what you see in this text is a recollection of the authority of Christ over evil. And I want you to sum it up that way in point number one. You need to recall Christ's authoritative position over evil. Recall Christ's authoritative position over evil. There's a lot of evil in our world today, isn't there? And we trust and we know and we recognize that a lot of that has demonic activity written all over it. Now, I guess I could take a minute at least to insert a little commentary on uh, the way that I think we should view demonic activity and the nature of sin. I think maybe I've mentioned this before, but at least there's a problem in our culture. uh, And often you can put one or two camps, at least two camps here, and I trust that we're not going to be in either one of them, that we'll be somewhere in the middle. Uh, You have one camp uh, that says that the devil made them do it, and every single problem they have is demonic activity in their life. And so they won't take personal culpability for their sin, They won't recognize that they have to stand before a holy God and they need to repent from their sins. And much of what's going on in their life has to do with their inability to pursue righteousness and trust in God to sanctify them. You also have this other group over here, which I trust and I think that if we have a struggle in our church, we could find ourselves over here. Okay, And over here is... Every single thing that is going on in your life has everything to do with sin and nothing to do with demonic forces or the schemes of Satan. And I trust that if that's what you would believe, that you would do well to read Scripture and find that there's a reason why Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the full armor of God so we could stand against the flaming arrows of your sin. It's not what it says, is it? The devil. Okay? And all I'm saying is a really good, clear understanding of Scripture says that we need to recognize a couple of things here. It's as old as the garden. You have the schemes of Satan and his authority that wants to rule over your life. And you have the passions of the flesh that are so easily tempted and so easily in your life carried out by your own pleasures and your own desires that are contrary to the will of God. And it's both of these things, the schemes of Satan and the desires of the flesh that marry together so well, that are so powerful, that often keeps you in a place of sin, in a place of anxiousness, and a place firmly outside of the will of God. 
And with that comes a clear understanding that we need to read Scripture and we need to understand something about the authoritative position of Christ over evil because we understand that as Jesus, just as much as Jesus died for our sins, he took away the power of sin and death and Satan and his followers. And it is all those things that we must keep in mind as we think about our lives in light of the cross. At least jot this text down. Luke 10. Luke 10, verses 17 through 20. I want you to pay special attention to Jesus' authority over evil in this text. And listen, I know there's a lot of things to tease out in that text that we're not going to be able to do. Because what I want you to do is just focus on the authority. Verse 17. After the 72 disciples had returned from going out and proclaiming the kingdom of Christ... They came back with joy, and here's what they were saying. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So even that phrase, right? The demons were subject to the disciples in the name of Jesus. And so again, in the the scenario, it wasn't the disciples that had the authority. It wasn't the demons that had authority. It was Jesus who had authority, and the disciples rejoiced at the authority of Christ as sufficient to overcome the forces of Satan. Verse 18, and Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Again, is that another statement of authority? That I was at the right hand of my father, Satan, as he sinned and sought the glory of God and to take place of the authority of God, then the authority of God acted and casted him out of heaven. And Jesus says, I was there. Now you want to talk about a claim to divinity, a claim to deity. You say, I was there when, when Satan was cast out of heaven. If you want to talk about a claim to divinity and a claim to deity, here it is. Jesus said, I was there. In verse 19, behold, I have given you authority. Now, who, when you have authority, you trust that you recognize no one has authority that is not given to them. Right? And we know that to be true in your job. You find out real quick if you do or don't have the authority to do something when you step over that line. And you recognize real quick, do I have the authority to do this? As a matter of fact, we see in other places in Scripture in the New Testament where people thought they had the authority to overcome demonic forces, and they started going around throwing around the name of Jesus and the name of Paul, and those demons looked at them and said, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, but who are you? Strips them butt naked, whips them, and sends them running. And all I'm saying is, you see why you shouldn't have this name it and claim it power over all the demons of the world no matter what, what you just say, Jesus? I mean, Scripture tells us, don't do that. When we see later in the New Testament where uh, you have the archangel Michael says, let the Lord rebuke you, Satan. He wasn't doing it. The angels aren't doing it. Why do you think we're doing that? It's not the sensational view that you ought to have of the authority of Satan and demons. But what you ought to do is the same thing we're seeing in this text, Christ's authority. We appeal to Christ to overcome the forces of evil. And he says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And again, uh, the imagery is saying, uh, what did Jesus, or what did Satan uh, take the form of in in Genesis? A serpent, okay? When you look in the book of Revelation, when you look at the demons that are coming up and tormenting the world, what did they look like? Scorpions, okay? So you recognize we're not, he's not telling you to go out and be an animal conservationist with scorpions and snakes because you're going to be able to deal with all of them. He's saying, did you have this authority uh, that has been given to you, given to these disciples by Christ over the power of Satan and his followers? Nevertheless, and this is a good point that I want you to to pay attention to. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. I love this because he's saying that sounds pretty sensational, doesn't it? That the disciples have this inherent authority and ability to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And they're excited about it. And Jesus says, yeah, that's just part of normal Christian living right there. Just get out there and do it. He says, don't rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you see how he changed the entire trajectory of that? It's because that's what he wanted them to know. 
What we rejoice in as Christians is that the authority of Christ tramples the head of the serpent, as we read in Genesis 3, conquers sin, and allows our name to be written in the book of life in heaven. And that's how you shall rejoice. That is your final vindication. That is what we look forward to as the church, that when we stand before God and he opens the books and they lay before there, your name is there because the authority of Christ over evil. And that's what we ought to recall as we think about this text is we ought to recall Christ's authoritative position over evil and over our sin a lot of implications I can go in there, right? You better, you better believe that God has authority over evil because such were some of us, right? Such were some of you, right? We were all the epitome of evil. No one seeks after God. We are all enemies of God and children of wrath. What does that mean but that we were evil and that Christ has the authority to subdue you and bring you into his kingdom? And we recall that. And it is that goodness, right? We'd call that benevolence, wouldn't we? That we were enemies of God and now we become friends of God through Christ. But it is that benevolent authority that we think about the goodness of God in Christ that also promises, and hear this out clear, promises a future judgment of the wicked. We've said it from this pulpit many times, and if you listen to me long enough, I'll try to say it again. You see no salvation in Scripture without judgment. Any place in Scripture where you find salvation, you find judgment following close behind, if not immediately. And again, as we think about the goodness of Christ in salvation, we must understand that also dictates that there's a future judgment of the wicked, and that includes the forces of Satan and the demonic realm. And it's to that judgment I want us to turn our attention to. And the first place I want you to look at is verse 29. Immediately upon Jesus' arrival there, on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, the demons, the first thing they do is address the coming eternal judgment. And if you want to know, should I be thinking about eternity? Should I be thinking about the eschatological realities? Well, the answer is a resounding yes, because the minute that the demons look at Jesus, they think, have you come here to torment us before the time? Did you hear that? The time? That there is a day on the calendar where this is going to happen? This isn't a, uh, this isn't a, a slight progression to this, and ultimately all the things little by little are going to be made right. There is a date on the calendar where everything is going to be transformed and everything is going to change, and it's because God intervenes in his authority that as right now he's restraining evil, and you better believe that, as bad as the world is, you better recognize in the world that we live in, God is still restraining evil. Because when he stops restraining evil, which will happen for a time in the eschaton as we await for the last things, there is a time where the great restraint will be taken away, God will take his hand off the world, and all hell will literally break loose. But you must trust in this time, and you should know it, that God restrains evil. But even here, these demons are recognizing even the restraining of evil that is happening. We recognize there's coming a time where all evil will be eradicated. Have you come to torment us before the time, before the, the day of judgment? Because there's coming a time where every one of these demons will pay for everything they've done when they rebelled because what demons are, you understand, are just the evil angels that did not repent. The ones who turned away and followed Satan, and he cast them down with Satan. And the Bible says you have two groups. You have the elect angels, right, those who are with God, and you have demons. You have the evil angels with the head of those being Satan. And all of them are waiting for their time of eternal judgment. And every time the name of Jesus is mentioned, they can think of one thing the date on the calendar when they're going to find themselves under the authority of Christ and cast to eternal judgment. And again, like I mentioned before, not always, but often, eternal judgment is preceded by acts of temporal judgment. And you see that in verse 33 when he says to them, go, and they go to the pigs, and they get into the herd of pigs, and they rush down the steep bank, and they drown in the waters. It's important to know that the demons, they wanted to be in the pigs. They didn't want to be disembodied, right? They didn't want to be floating around in, in waterless places. They wanted to be 
within the beings of the people and the pigs. And so either way you cut it here, what we see here is a, at least a temporary scene where these demons were punished under the authority of Christ for what they had done. I don't believe the demons died. The demons are immortal, eternal beings, but I think it was a clear sign of Christ's judgment on them in that scenario. But with all that being said, what I want us to do is this. I want us to write this down on point number two. All of this should, should bring us to a place where we are eagerly anticipating evil's impending judgment. You should, in your life as a Christian, eagerly anticipate evil's impending judgment. There's a lot of reasons you better be doing this. And if you're not doing this, I cannot imagine what your life is looking like today. Because every time something bad happens in this world, every time you turn on the news and something evil transpires, if you are not eagerly anticipating evil's impending judgment, I can imagine it's very difficult to look at the evil in our world and address it from a biblical worldview. Because if we're not going to look at the evil in our world in light of the impending judgment to come, we're going to want vindication today. We're going to want our own justice. We're going to want to make all those things right right now, and we're not going to be able to deal with life as God calls us to because we're so tied up in how we're going to fix all the problems in the world, and we're going to make all the wrong things right, and how we're going to make all the bad things good. When we recognize that Scripture tells us the opposite, things are going to go from bad to worse. The love of many will grow cold. Children will be haters of their parents, be insolent, Think about this. The culture of the world that we live in is getting from bad to worse. And if we're not going to be eagerly anticipating evils and pending judgment, then we're going to be in a vicious cycle of disobedience to God, just to put it lightly. Is it good when we see temporal acts of judgment? Isn't it great when somebody gets arrested for a crime and they get convicted and they go to prison? Isn't that great? Isn't that great when they catch the bad guy? Right? Isn't that just a wonderful glimpse into the perfect justice that is to come? But we live in an unjust world, in an unjust society, and that just is not the picture every single time, is it? And all I'm saying is that if we spend all of our time wishing those things were different, trying to, not being able to handle our time and our life when our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, because all we can do is look at all the evil around us, not recognizing, just like the demons did, there's coming a day. But don't think lightly of the fact that when the demons saw Jesus, they thought about the day. And when you think about Jesus, do you think about the day? Because if you don't, you're not thinking about your faith in the right light. When you think about Jesus, if you're not thinking about the day, you're not thinking about your faith in the way the scripture tells us to think about our faith. Because when we think about Jesus, we should think about the day. It's much like when, when you uh, get married and you think about your spouse and you think about that day, you know, the day, the wedding day. And you think often when you're thinking about your spouse and you reminisce with your spouse. And every once in a while you, you, you're thinking, you're like, you remember that day? That was a great day, wasn't it? And every day you look at your hand and you see that ring on your finger and you say, remember that day that brought us to this place where we were at? Wasn't that a great day? Well, there's going to be a day where uh, the, the church who's known as the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom. Right? He's going to come and he's going to, he's going to take his church and he's going to take us to himself. He's going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to reign with him for a thousand years. And then after that, he's going to then, as Satan is released, if you know your eschatology, Satan's going to be released for a short time because he knows his time is short. And then after that, Christ is going to take him, he's going to defeat him, and he's going to throw him into the lake of fire. And we're just looking forward to that day. We're looking forward to that day. It's on my calendar. It's, my calendar's not long enough, but it's on this calendar, and it's on this calendar because I'm waiting for that day. Let me give you a scripture that tells you you need to be waiting for that day. You need to write down 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, I'm going to read to you two verses, verse 4 and verse 9. It'll be in your application questions this week, so you will be able to read the in-between verses. But at least for our time here this morning, 2 Peter 2, verse 4 and verse 9. And it says there that if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, and we're recognizing that he already made a statement of what really happened, right? Of course, God did not spare the angels when 
They sinned, but he cast them out into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, listen to this, to be kept until the judgment, until the judgment. And we recognize that even the, the evil uh, and even the, the coup that was trying to be staged in, in heaven uh, came with it uh, judgment that came with it, both a, a temporal act of judgment and a promise of eternal judgment. And then you see in those in-between verses all of the ways that temporary justice was fulfilled in this time as you think about Sodom and Gomorrah and you think about Lot being rescued from all these people and you see Noah and the flood and, and God temporarily, he, he expends, expenses judgment on the earth but then he delivers uh, Noah and his family. And then here in verse 9 it says, the Lord knows how to rescue the, un, the, the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to do that. He's got his children. He knows how to rescue them from trials. He's got a great track record of doing that. And as much as we want to look forward to God rescuing us from the trials in our life, Peter wants us to recognize also and, verse 9, to keep the unrighteousness under punishment until the day of judgment. This is important for us to understand. If we want to understand the scope and the meta narrative of Scripture, you cannot get to the end without recognizing there is a day in which everyone will be judged. And there will be a day where the evil will be cast into eternal judgment. And it's that impending judgment that we ought to, in our faith, eagerly anticipate. Because there are going to be so many things in this world you're not going to be able to control. There's going to be so much evil that you cannot contain. But what you're going to do... It's not like you're gonna. You're not gonna. You see a, an, an old elderly lady getting robbed. You're not just gonna. You're not just gonna say, "Well, I'm eagerly anticipating evils and pending judgment." We're not gonna do that. Then you're wicked. Okay. So we're not saying we're never gonna do anything, but it's impossible. And you know it. Every time you turn on the news, and every time you get on social media, every time you get on YouTube, you cannot restrain the evil in the world. And there's nothing you can do with the amount of evil that you see in this world. But what Christ commands you to do is looking at the text is to look forward to the impending judgment of the wicked. Remember, you really can't do that if you're not also thinking about your own salvation because it is salvation and judgment that coincide with one another. So in the same way you're looking forward to your salvation, your ultimate salvation, is in the same way you ought to be looking forward also to ultimate justice being carried out by God. And it's knowing of this impending judgment that must we all must consider how we relate to Jesus. Now hear me out, listen to me. If we're going to understand the, the judgment, if we're going to understand the authority of Christ, we must understand how we relate to Jesus. In what way do we relate to the authority and the judgment of Christ? Because how we relate to Jesus has everything to do with how we view his authority. I want you to look at the text and just watch. Okay, Because Jesus has the same authority in this whole text no matter who the group was that interacted with Jesus. You agree with that, right? Jesus didn't change his authority. He didn't enter into different levels of authority as he's dealing with these people. He has the same authority, but it all mattered about how those individuals or those entities related to Christ that directly impacted how Jesus related to them. Verse 29, again, the demons relate to Christ through their coming judgment at the hands of Jesus. Imagine that. I mean, Jesus, if Jesus gets out of the boat, just imagine yourself, right, saved in Christ, and Jesus gets out of the boat, and you see him, and you're thinking, oh, man, the darling of heaven, the sacrifice for all my sins, my friend and my Lord, my Jesus. I'm going to run up to him, and I'm going to say, Jesus, why are you going to do that? Because that's how you relate to him. You relate to his authority through your salvation. But not these demons, right? These demons relate to Christ through their coming judgment. So when they see Jesus coming up, same Jesus, same authority comes up. They look at him and they're thinking, oh no, not that guy. That guy, he's coming to judge us. He's coming to send us away. Secondly, the village, the villagers, how do they relate to Jesus? They relate to Jesus through fear of what he's going to do to change their economy, to change their day-to-day -day life. That's why they want to send him away, isn't it? Like, man, if I have to include Jesus into my way of life, that means things got to be a lot different. That means these pigs, I don't know what he's got a thing against pigs. 
you got a thing against pigs, are we going to be able to raise pigs again? You know, I mean, just imagine all the things that are going through the minds of these villagers. They look at those men, and they see that they're cured, and they're clothed, and in their right mind. And they're having to think, well, if Jesus is authoritative and powerful enough to do that, is he going to have to be the mayor? And we're going to have to do everything that he wants us to do. Far short of the mayor, right? Is he going to be the king? He was the king. So in a lot of ways, the villagers, if I estimate correctly, had a lot more of the right idea of who Jesus was than I think many think. They just didn't want anything to do with it. Because that kind of authority, they didn't want in their life. And they related to Jesus based upon their inability and unwillingness to trust in the authority of Christ in their life. But look at those formerly demonized men. They're relating to Christ through their liberation. They want to follow Christ. I mean, Mark and Luke tell us that they were begging Jesus, let us come with you. We want to go with you. I mean, we look at look what you've done in all. We want to go with you. I mean, you couldn't get the villagers in the boat. And the formerly demonized men are like, let us in, get us in the boat. And Jesus says, no, 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 go. Go back to your villages and tell them what the Lord has done. Go be evangelists about the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, what you see there is everyone related to Christ dependent upon how they viewed his authority in their life. It's not just that way in this text. It's that way in the world we live in. That's why so many people have so much animosity towards Christ. Because it all depends on how they relate to Christ and his authority. I mean, the way that you relate to it. If you're saved in this room, you think everything of the authority of Christ, don't you? You joyfully submit to the authority of Christ because of how you relate to him through his gracious sacrifice for your sin. And you have other people... When you say, well, the Bible says that you need to turn from your sin, place your trust in Christ, that you deny yourself, take up your, Christ, your cross, and follow him. And they're like, no, I'm not going to submit to that authority. And they will relate to Christ in that way. And all of that necessitates upon us that we need to make sure that we get on the right side of Christ's authority. And that's point number three. You need to jot that down. Get on the right side of Christ's authority. I want you to recognize that every person that has ever existed, every angelic being, whether elect or evil, will do the same thing before Christ. Philippians 2, it tells us that everyone, because of who Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross, is exactly what Philippians 2 says, that God has then therefore highly exalted on him and bestowed upon him the name that is above all names. And it is at that name that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Right? We're just making sure we get everybody, all the angels, the elect ones, the evil ones, all the people. Every one of them will bow at the name of Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So your neighbor who hates God, you're in here, maybe you love the Lord. Maybe you're watching and you hate the Lord or you love the Lord. All the people that you see when you go to the concert or you go to the big game or you're looking on the TV and you see all those thousands of people crowded into those stadiums, you better recognize every single one of those people from past to the time of Jesus' return will all do one thing. They will bow at the name of Jesus and every single one of those tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. But they will do it for very different reasons. You have the one group who, want to relate, who will relate to Christ, who will be on the right side of Christ's authority, who will worship him willfully out of adoration because they love him because of who he is and what he's accomplished on their behalf to bring them into the kingdom of the Father. And they will adore and they will worship. That you have the other group who will worship in their heart and their mind unwillingly, involuntarily, but by God's decree. By God's command and by God's decree, they will drop to their knees and they will worship. But they're on the wrong side of Christ's authority. I want you to think about your own life this morning. And I want you to recognize that the way that you relate to Christ has everything to do with what side of his authority that you're on. 
And that's why the holiness of God matters, right? He's perfect in all of his ways, inscrutable, that there is God and then there's everything else and everything else includes you and me and he's holy and he's just. That means he perfectly measures out justice and righteousness, that sin cannot be overlooked or God wouldn't be just, that all of us are under outside of Christ under the judgment and justice of God and it requires a holy and just God to be the the, the benevolent ruler over all the universe. And if he isn't benevolent, he's not good. If he he doesn't have all authority, then he's not God. And yet we have this idea that we want God to be all good, and we want God to be benevolent, and we want God to be just. But the question is, do you want him to be just to you? Because if he's equally just to everyone, which he must be if he's good, and if he's God, he must be equally just and equitable to all people, then we all must recognize, because he's holy and we're not, that we all rest under the wrath of God. And it's that justice that we read through in Scripture where everyone must be held account. And it is why he sends his son to take on the wrath of God, the justice of God that we deserved. And that's why when we think about the person and work of Christ, we say it all the time, that the person of Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is fully man and fully God, that he did incarnate himself, sent by the Father, incarnate, God in a body, here, his person, and then his, his work. And his work was that he lived. You better believe that he lived. Don't forget the part that he lived in your place. He didn't just die in your place on the cross. He lived in your stead and did it perfectly without sin, fulfilling the laws, fulfilling the righteous requirements through his person. And his work that he brought to completion on the cross, taking your sins because he can, because he had not sinned, because he was completely righteous, and because he was God, completely sufficient for all the sins of the world. And therefore the Father put his judgment on the Son, on the cross, and he died in three days, was raised. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Amen? He was raised three days later so that therefore he would prove to you ultimately that he has authority over sin and death, the grave and Satan, and the forces of evil. And it's to that that we must ask, are you on the right side of Christ's authority? Because if you aren't, the command is the same. Repent and trust in Christ, his authority, his promise of the forgiveness of sins. Will you bow willfully out of adoration, or are you going to bow involuntarily by the decree of God? Let's pray. Thank you.